Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by The Idea Farm. Do you want the same investing edge as the pros? The Idea Farm gives small investors the same market research, usually reserved for only the world's largest institutions, funds, and money managers. These are reports from some of the most respected research shops in investing. Many of them cost thousands and are only available to institutions or investment professionals, but now they're yours with the Idea Farm subscription. Are you ready for an investing edge? Visit theideafarm.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We have an extra special guest today, Mark Yusko. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Meb. Always great to hang out with you and looking forward to the conversation. What, where are you calling in from? Are you in Chapel Hill right now? I am in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, home of the Tar Heel basketball team that uh, is looking good after winning the Maui Classic. Two out of the last three times we won that, we ended up winning the national championship, so looking good this year. Well, great. My, my alma mater, Virginia, is, is a top 10 team as well. So hopefully you have something to cheer for. Well, you got a better looking coach, but yeah. you got that going for you. Most of our listeners are probably familiar with you. I've quoted and probably misattributed a number of quotes to you in, in podcast past. But for, for those who aren't familiar, why don't you give us a, just a two minute overview of, you know, kind of what, what you've been up to prior to starting Morgan Creek, starting with did, did, I, did I hear right? You were a fellow biology student at one point or thinking Absolutely. about a, greatest, a career in Great training for investing. Look, I, I'm a big believer that uh, the sciences, whether it be biology and chemistry, my majors, or really any science is, is just great training for investing. You know, I got into investing by a happy accident. Kind of my whole life is a series of happy accidents. But you know, went to school to be an architect, didn't like that, liked biology and chemistry, did that, thought I wanted to be a doctor. Decided not to do that. Went to business school. Went to Notre Dame undergrad, business school at Chicago. Took a job at an insurance company, like 40% of the people in the world. Uh, it's an amazing stat that 40% of the people work for an insurance company at some point in their career or some related company to an insurance company. The guy who was doing investments retired, took over the portfolio. I like to say I hired Dan Fuss before he was famous. So it was the first hire I ever made as a fixed income guy. Then I went to work for an equity firm called Discipline Investment Advisors, a couple of ex-Northwestern profs, and then I got the call. So way back when, Lou Holtz had a clause in his contract, lifetime contract at Minnesota, unless Notre Dame called. I kind of had the same deal at Disciplined. You know, we were a billion dollars back when a billion dollars meant something. There were five of us. You know, the two professors kept all the money, but eventually young guys were going to get something. But I wanted to be at my alma mater more than I wanted to be in Evanston, Illinois. Went back, learned the endowment business, uh, had a big epiphany that picking stocks and bonds was not all there was. It was really about asset allocation. It was about this thing called the endowment model. Uh, spent five years as the number two, was always going to be the number two, but didn't really care because it was the alma mater. But I got a call that they were looking for someone in North Carolina. I told my wife, she said, take it. I said, don't you want to know what it is? She says, no, I just want to live in North Carolina. She was right. We came down to North Carolina, had a great run, spent seven years as the CIO at North Carolina, really honed the craft of this endowment model, focusing on hedging and, and risk reduction and not losing money and you know, keeping the, the portfolio stable from 2000 to 2002 when, when everyone was getting killed. And, and also taking advantage of the liquidity premium. Then got approached by two families in 04 to come be their CIO. Decided I didn't want to work for just one family, so I opened up Morgan Creek. And we advise a handful of wealthy families and institutions. We run some fund of funds We run some direct funds. We dabble in, in uh, some private investing uh, on the direct side as well. I've gotten to know you over the years and enjoyed our relationship and glad to be here today. 
Great. Well, we're going to have a pretty wide-ranging conversation, but why don't we start a little more basic, and then we'll get into some some themes and ideas and some more specifics. And and if you've read any of Mark's writing, it's pretty wide-ranging. I mean, I, I, I printed out the last handful of quarterly reports, and he talks about everything from Ferris Bueller to Seth Klarman to Prince to skiing to Shakespeare. So there's quite a bit in there, and we'll, we'll post links in the show notes for those interested in reading more later. But let, let's start with the basics. So thinking about the endowment model, and, and you've been a practitioner of kind of asset allocation sort of ideas that are very heavy in what most would consider alternatives. I know you're, if you probably said your wheelhouse would be the, the long, short equity space, but Maybe talk a little bit about kind of your thoughts on the endowment model, but but also how um, your your views have evolved over the past 10, 20 years, with particularly with a one thought, one hand on, you know, as institutions practice, but also, you know, how how an individual investor could attempt or or in many ways not uh, track some of the, the best concepts of the endowment model. Look, I, I think it's a it's a really important conversation and, and topic, and, and I spent a lot of my career thinking about it and trying to, to find a way to, to craft a strategy that would allow individuals to gain access to that model. You know, it's really interesting. If you think about every large pool of capital in the world that I'm aware of, large family, large institution, foundation, endowment, pension fund, sovereign wealth vehicle, they all manage their money the same way. They've got a heavy allocation to I use air quotes, quote-unquote alternatives, because I hate that term. You know, whoever thought of that term was not a marketing genius because people don't like alternative stuff. They like traditional stuff. So I like to think of, of investing as, as very simple. You know, you can own stocks, you can own bonds, you can own currencies, and you, know, you can own commodities. And how you own them doesn't matter, whether it's in a hedge fund wrapper, a, a mutual fund wrapper, a separate account, a partnership, private partnership. It's all the same risk factors, credit risk, equity risk, illiquidity risk, and structure or, or leverage. And you know, when I got to Notre Dame, I didn't really know what this whole endowment model was, Cambridge Associates, really the pioneers there. But what I realized is that you, know, you can agonize all day, should I own Ford or GM? And the answer is, over the last decade, you should have owned Tata Motors, and you should have overweighted India and underweighted the U.S., over that period. And that's an asset allocation call, not a security selection call. And you think about the four steps of managing capital, asset allocation, manager selection, portfolio construction, and security selection. Security selection, which is what gets all the airtime on CNBC, et cetera, is only 10 to 15% of returns. All the returns come from asset allocation, the manager selection, the portfolio construction, how much you give to each individual manager, which asset classes you're in, and so the big, you know, endowments and foundations and sovereign wealth funds and big families all figured this out. And they realized that talent is going to migrate to the place where they can make the most money, whether it used to be inside bank trust companies, then it was in independent asset managers, and then it was in hedge funds, private partnerships. But I believe in talent and people manage money, not institutions. And so you want to follow the talent. And in every business I know, right? Doctor, lawyer, football coach, basketball player, uh, investment manager, the best person always charges the most. So this idea that, that you should minimize fees, I just think is, is ludicrous. I think you should want to maximize your net return. And if that happens to be that you can do some, some good stuff with low fee stuff, great. But most of the great investors, the Seth Klarmans of the world, the David Teppers of the world, you know, exist, the, the Jim Simons of the world exist in a structure where you have to pay high fees to, to get access to them. So that's a long rambling answer to your question, but, but I really believe that asset allocation matters most, where you invest. I mean, let's take since 2000 in what I call the new abnormal, the compound return on an index fund, even with all the low fees, is 3.5% net. There's a technical term for that. That sucks. If you had hedge funds, even though hedge funds have sucked, another technical term, over the last five years, over that 16-year period, you made 75 instead of 35 net of all the fees. That's better. And if you did private investments where you get the illiquidity premium, you made 11 and 11 is way better. So again, every large pool of capital I know has a big weighting in private, has a big weighting in alternatives or hedge funds. And I'll just give you one, one idea. 
So if you think about GMO, and I know a lot of your listeners know GMO, Jeremy Grantham, great value investor up in Boston, great value shop, $100 billion in assets. Jeremy's taken all of the money that he's made running that firm of traditional asset management and put it into a foundation to save the planet. And his asset allocation for that foundation, which happens to be the number one performing foundation since 2000, outperformed Yale, outperformed everybody else, is 40% venture capital, 40% hedge funds, 13% emerging market equities, and 7% cash. That's fascinating. I, I didn't know that. That's, a, that's an interesting stat. Well, so here, there's a couple of takeaways and questions here for you. So one, you know, and, and I think this is a quote I'll attribute to you, is, is one of the biggest challenges with the alternative space and finding these top managers is you've said something along the lines of, look, when I'm looking for the managers, I want the guys that don't want my money, meaning like it's, it's, they're, they're either closed or it's hard to get access to these. Yeah. So for a lot of institutions, but then on down to individuals, you know, they hear these names like Simons, which is only internal money or, you know, whether it's Klarman, et cetera, and it, access is kind of the biggest problem. What, what's your thoughts on that from, you know, kind of an individual? Is it something where you think, look, there's a whole swath of alternatives that'll just never be accessible? Or do you think there's areas that they could replicate? What, what, what's kind of your thought there in the broader kind of non-traditional core passive space? Yeah, look, I, I think it's a really important point. You know, the very, very best of the best at this point aren't reachable. Now, I'm going to make an argument that you don't necessarily want the best of the best after they've been doing it for 25, or in Seth Klarman's case, 33 years. When you want Seth Klarman is in 2000, when nobody wanted to invest with Seth. You know, Seth was a value manager. You know, basically, he came out of Harvard Business School. I wrote about this in the letter. The, the professors hired him. They started interviewing managers, and they realized, wait, the managers don't invest the way you're telling us to invest, so why don't we just do this ourselves? So they created a value-focused strategy. They said, Seth, you're going to do it. And for the first kind of 13 years that he ran the business, he did fine. You know, he, he compounded around 10 11%, but the market was running 15% in that late 90s period. And people just didn't want to hear about value. Value was dead. And no one wanted to talk about hedge funds. You know, Tiger Management went out of business in 2000. So nobody wanted to give him money in 2000. The average person could have given him lots of money. But they didn't because they wanted to buy index funds. They had record-setting flows into index funds. Then the next 10 years, the S&P 500 made minus 1% compounded per year, even with low fees, and Seth made 17. So you want to get with these guys before they become famous. You know, the, the line I would say is that, you know, it's Groucho Marx, they'd never join a club that would take me. And that's true. The, the, the very best of the very best that we know about got that way by being really good undiscovered gems for a long time. Now, the problem is, how do you find them? Well, you actually have to kiss a lot of frogs. I mean, you got to go meet hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of managers. I mean, I've done, you know, 250 to 300 manager interactions a year for 25 years, and I've kissed a lot of frogs, and I've probably invested in one or 2% of the people we've ever met. Part of it is you got to be in the business. Part of it is, or you have to have a trusted advisor. And I think the average person isn't going to do it themselves. They've got a life. They're, they're earning their money to, to retire on. They don't have time to manage it full time. So they need a trusted advisor. And there are some good trusted advisors out there if you can find them to help you. And this touches on a couple of things, and I want to come back to private equity here in a minute. But the interesting part about this, and you know, we wrote a book on, on called Invest With A House that talks about looking at a lot of these managers. And, and one of the most often asked questions from people is, all right, Meb, how do I find these guys? And and then conversely, how do I also know when to get rid of them? So, you know, if they've been underperforming for X amount of years, you know, like a lot of the value guys have since the global financial crisis, you know, Buffett's picks done terrible for the past eight yep. years, et cetera. You know, at what point do I know when to fire them? At what point do I know to invest in a drawdown? And my comment is always, look at this particular area and rem reminder to everyone that I'm a quant. So this particular area requires a massive amount of kind of domain expertise. And you have to be interested because you know, if that manager is going through a divorce or he's on tilt or he's growing, you know, just happy with his wealth or whatever it may be, 
you know, style drift. There's all these reasons. So it requires a lot more effort. That having been said, what, what are like, when thinking about, and this applies to quant strategies too, but when thinking about allocating to a strategy that you believe in or a manager and every manager's strategy goes through years of underperformance and drawdowns, what is your perspective on either allocating during a drawdown and then also saying, no, what, this time is different. Either the strategy is broken or this manager is done. What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, look, I, I think this is maybe the most important point in all of investing, which is a big statement, but I think you've hit on, on the number one point, which is the bulk of people spend all their time on the wrong P. They focus on performance. You should basically almost never think about performance. You should be thinking about the other three P's, people, process, and philosophy. And the most profitable strategy of any, and you know this is a quant, I know it is a qualitative guy, the absolute most profitable strategy of any strategy there is, is to buy strategies that have been out of favor for, you know, between one and three years. And you have the rule of 90%, you know, when an asset class goes down 90% or a stock goes down 90%, you know, you have to buy it, if, assuming the other three things have stayed the same. And that's, that's the key, is if you look at managers, there's, there's so many reasons to fire a manager, right? You could have a change in personnel, you could have a change in process, you could have a change in philosophy, the three big Ps. You could have, you know, someone going through a divorce. You know, I had a, a friend in the business, he lost two kids. I can't imagine losing one child. How do you lose two children and function? How do you get out of bed? And as harsh as that set sounds, that guy was not going to be able to do a good job for the next however long it took to heal from the grief. You know, I've had guys call in rich and, you know, get red Ferrari syndrome. You know, one of my favorite stories on that is I was, I was you know, I talked about red Ferrari syndrome a lot when I first got in the business and I met with this guy, Steven Feinberger, ran Cerberus, who's a pretty famous manager. And this was early days, and they had been pretty successful, but he wasn't who he is today. He had heard me talk about RFS, and he said, Mark, here, I'll make you a deal. If I ever move out of my house or buy a new car, I'll personally double your investment. Now, he lives in a you know, little modest house in Greenwich next to you know, some castles that people have knocked down and, and rebuilt around him. So he still lives in the same house. But I could have actually won the bet because about five years later, he finally traded in his Toyota pickup truck with 260,000 miles, but he got another Toyota pickup truck. So I let him off the hook. Those things last forever. Exactly, exactly. But I think it's, it's all about the P of performance is what everybody looks at. So they want to sell the guy who's down three years in a row, and they want to buy the person who just had a great three years. But we know from mean reversion that the, what's going to happen? That person who's been the hot dot for three years is now going to have bad three years. And the person who was tough for three years is now going to cycle back because everything's cyclical. And whether it's three years or three and a half years or four years or two years, it doesn't really matter. But the key is, if all you're doing is looking at performance, which is why the average investor underperforms, you know, over the last 20 years, someone who bought and held stocks made eight, someone who bought and held bonds made six and a half. The average investor made three and a half. Why? Because they're constantly chasing the hot dot hiring at the wrong time, doing what human beings do so well. They buy what they wish they would have bought, and then they sell at the bottom. It's just crazy. And the interesting part is that most of it, we've been giving a speech recently, and one of the topics is, is this very topic. And we say, look, it's also not just a retail phenomenon. You mentioned the institutions. There's academic papers that study all the firing and hiring decisions. And in almost every case, they would have been better the manager they fired versus the manager they hired because they're just chasing the performance. And I mean, there was a recent study that came out on State Street, I think it was with Financial Times, where they asked institutions, how long would you tolerate an active or smart beta manager underperforming before you search for a replacement? And 89 to 99% said two years or less. Yes. We know that that's the road to ruin. And I mean, I can give you chapter and verse. The first firm I worked for, we had a client. They stayed with us for three years. They hired us when we were hot. We went through the recession because we were a value manager, underperformed. They fired us, hired a growth manager. Three years later, the growth manager underperformed. We were hot. They came back to us. So for nine years, these guys underperformed because they were constantly chasing. In fact, if they just give us each 50% of the money, they would have been better off. Yeah, we have a, um, and, and this is going to touch on a topic 
that we're getting, getting ready to talk about in private equity is that, you know, we, we launched this digital advisor and traditionally most of these robo advisors allow the individual investor to change their allocation. And we say, look, we need to lock this down because one of the biggest benefits of an advisor, traditional financial planner, RIA, is they keep people from themselves and, and wanting yeah. to do dumb things at the wrong time. And we often rail about how much financial advisors cost, but I say, look, they're worth their weight in gold if they can keep you from doing dumber things. And, and this touches on, so now thinking a little bit, and we're shifting gears a little bit, but there's an interesting takeaway on, on the private equity side. And historically, private equity, VC buyouts is a monster area of outperformance for these private funds because they get access to the top guys. And historically, the little guys really have no chance. They're better off in an S&P 500 fund. And, and you've talked a lot about the illiquidity premium, meaning your money is locked up. So I'm going to get ask, get to it in a second, but I'm going to ask you one. The first question is, do you think the individual investor has any chance in private equity at all? Or are they better off just saying, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to index this and, and just forget about it? Look, I think I think the average investor does have one arm, actually both arms tied behind their back, really by the SEC at this point. You know, the SEC has this silly rule, and I hope they're listening and they heard me say silly, because it is silly, that, you know, if you're not rich, you're not smart. You know, if you don't have $2 million in assets or you don't make a certain amount of money, you're not smart. And that's just insane. And the real reason they have that rule is because I believe the mutual fund lobby spends millions of dollars a year to make sure that rule exists because every dollar that goes into private equity or venture capital or real estate or any other asset is coming right out of mutual funds. And the Tax Act of 86 ensured that all the money went into mutual funds into these DC plans, which is another soapbox I could get on. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous to think that a person who's trying to work a job, live their life, and who has no experience managing capital is going to manage their retirement better than a professional in a DB plan. It's just not going to happen. And the data shows that. I, I do think right now it is incredibly hard to get access. And I'll tell you how bad it is, and it, it is my, my, my one soapbox, and I haven't, haven't figured out how to fi fix it, but my daughter called me. She's a nurse down in Santa Monica, and she called me and said, Dad, help me with my 401k or 403b, I guess, and not-for-profit. And she had you know, 11 choices, seven stock, four bond, no real estate, no commodities, no private, no nothing. I started to get really angry because I thought, first of all, my daughter, who is a beautiful person, incredibly bright, she's a pediatric oncology nurse, so she does God's work, but she has no business trying to manage her money because she doesn't have any training or any knowledge, and she doesn't have any time. She works nights. She's tired. I mean, just really bad idea. Plus, she can't touch the money by law for something like 46 or 47 years. So why shouldn't she have 100% of that fund for the first 30 years in private investments? where we know you pick up an extra four to 500 basis points per year compounded in a liquidity premium, but you're not allowed to do that. It's against the law. Instead, she can put it 100% in cash, which to me is almost criminal because then you're going to lose to inflation, but that's perfectly all right. So the deck, the deck is stacked against the average investor today when they try to get access to private. Now, it's getting better. There are some new things. There are some registered investment companies. There are some good things out there that are being formed. But, you know, one of these days I'm going to chuck everything and, and, and go to work on this soapbox and, and try to, to break down this, this barrier because it is wrong that, you know, Yale, Prince, Stanford, Harvard can get access to the Kleiners, the Sequoias, et cetera, and the average investor can't. But that's going to change. It's going to change. I wrote a very constructively critical, suggestive article about the SEC three weeks ago. And then SEC turned around and said, by the way, you're getting audited next week. So well, well done, SEC. We love you if you're listening, by the way. Oh, um, my God. One, one, <laughs> one comment on the... We're confident that we do everything well, you're okay. you're in good company, so. Meb, because that happened to Cliff Asnes, too. <laughs> so one comment that there's actually an interesting takeaway on the private side, because I've kind of gone back and forth many times on the private side. My ideas. And there's all these new angel networks and there's all these new secondary networks like Equities In where you can get access. You still got to be accredited for most of them, but the, a lot of the crowdfunding rules are changing. And, and I think in general, 
it's going to be a terrible place for investors to uh, probably invest a lot of their money because it's kind of like the Wild West. So the people that do a lot of due diligence, it's probably a good spot. You could probably pick and choose and, and, and do well. But I think like talking about the hedge funds, you, it's, it's kind of on you. You got to be able to pick the, the right companies. And this is coming from someone who just is closing a, cl- a crowdfunding round. But one of the most interesting thoughts that I've changed my mind on and this came from, I think, listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast, who's not not historically in the finance space, is he said, you know, one of the benefits, not drawbacks of VC and private markets is the lockup period, meaning you would make an investment in a private company and you can't sell it. So forget one or two years, bear market, whatever, you can't sell that thing until there's liquidity event, which in many cases are five or 10 years, which in for most retail investors would probably actually be a behavioral benefit rather than drawback. So not only are you capturing the illiquidity premium, you keep yourself from doing dumber things, which I hadn't really thought about anyway, I think is, is sort of an interesting takeaway. Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. I wanted to ask you one more topic on asset allocation, then we're going to move on. I was listening to one of your interviews on Real Vision TV, uh, which listeners, if you haven't subscribed, it's a great Charlie Rose style video. We, we did one with the founder when we were down in the Caymans. Mark was talking a little bit about his asset allocation advice model for individuals. And you may, you may or may not remember this, but uh, could, you, could you elucidate a little bit on that? Uh, your kind of three buckets that you talk about for most, most people? Yep. No, I, and I think this is really important. And look, I, I think Real Vision is, is the future of financial media, and, and it really is a, an amazing, amazing product and service. So for those who don't subscribe, you should. I believe that that all of us, every investor, should have three buckets. And you've got your liquidity bucket, and that is to fund the next two years of spending. So it should be 10 to 15%. That 10 to 15% should be in truly liquid, you know, cash-like, bond-like, you know, very low-risk things because you, you're going to need it to spend. And if you spend 5%, two years is 10. If you spend 7% a year, then two years is 14. So round to 15. So 10 to 15% in the liquidity bucket. Then I say everybody should also have a get-rich bucket. Now, the get-rich bucket, I tell people that should be to own pieces of businesses. It should be, you know, income develop, you know, real estate or whatever. But really what people do with that, it's their punting money, right? It's the hot stock tip from their broker. It's the thing they hear on CNBC. You know, God forbid it's, it's the, the friends, you know, condo deal or, or, you know, other friends venture deal. And I would say, you're going to lose all that. So just keep it small. So 10 to 15% play money. Be willing to lose it, and if you hit a big home run, fantastic. If you if you focus on it and you really spend time on it, it can be incredibly productive. So that get-rich bucket has a hole in the bottom, and it drips down into the middle, which is the biggest bucket, 70 to 80%, which is the stay-rich bucket. And that stay-rich bucket then has a hole on the on one side of it, and it drips down into the liquidity bucket. So every year you take 5 to 7% out of the stay-rich bucket, replenish the liquidity bucket, and hope the get-rich bucket generates some, some good stuff. But in that stay-rich bucket, that's where it's all about diversification. Because getting rich is all about concentration. Every large fortune in the world right, came from a concentrated position, concentrated stock position, concentrated business ownership, concentrated real estate, whatever it is. It, it, it came from concentration. And every small fortune also comes from concentration. How do you make a small fortune? Start with a large one and stay concentrated. So you need to diversify that stay-rich bucket. And that's where the endowment model, the, you know, the sovereign wealth model, whatever you want to call it, pension model. So you want to have you know, some traditional assets, some alternative assets, and, and some private assets. And there, I think a diversified portfolio, like you said, with a locked-down asset allocation that you're forced to rebalance to, because rebalancing does work if you do it on a, a periodic basic basis, not monthly, weekly, quarterly, but over annual and two- and three-year periods, really rebalancing. You know, there's an amazing piece that I saw recently. Michael Mobison reprinted it from something he wrote years ago at Lake Mason, that people who check their portfolio every day underperform those who check on it annually by 7% a year. <laughs> I mean, think about that number. It's the old Fidelity study. It says the best performing accounts were people that either forgot they had an account or it died. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, or, or people who are my, my father-in-law's accounts, who literally he has people, you know, whose cost basis in Exxon Mobil is like 25 cents. Well, so I, I think this is really important, listeners, because the stay rich bucket is, in Mark talks about, is, you know, to get wealthy is often a different portfolio or skill set. And a lot of people that then grow to have a, a nice portfolio, wealth, whatever. So whether it's starting a company, selling a company, having a great concentrated stock ownership, whatever, they get wealthy, but then they continue with the same concentration. And William Bernstein talks about this. Buffett talks about this. Once you get to a level of wealth, the quote is, you've already won the game. Like there's no reason to put all of that at risk in a traditional concentrate. And you see it over and over. I forget the guy's name in Brazil, one of the top five richest people in the world, but had a massively... Ike Batista. Yep. Yeah, like a massively concentrated position in life and then essentially lost it all. So, you know, one of the one of the biggest things we say is we always talk about you've already won the game, take a little bit less risk in the sense of concentration when you get to size uh, makes a lot of sense. All right, let's let's segue a little bit to some thematic and uh, sort of investing ideas. You do a lot here on kind of macro themes and, and thinking about what are, what are the main ones you're thinking about today? And and I'm going to follow that up with, with following up on... Mark does a great article called 10 Financial Predictions Every Year. And also, I'd like to say, what are the ones that you talked about last year that have surprised you that haven't occurred? Oh, yeah. No, no. That's interesting. So the idea of the surprises... So, you know, I borrowed this from, from Byron Wien, is a surprise is something that you think has a slightly better than 50-50 chance of happening, that if it did happen, would, would literally surprise the market and would generate significant returns. Part of that goes back to this idea of variant perception. You know, Michael Steinhardt coined the term, and he said, you know, all of our big returns in life came from taking a variant perception, which is a materially different view than the consensus, because if it's consensus, it's unlikely to happen. So you take, have to take a materially different view, and it's not necessarily contrarian for contrarian's sake, but you know, when something becomes a broad consensus, you take a, a variant perception and you, you bet on the you know, unexpected. In that theme, we expect to get about half of the surprises right every year. So you know, coming into this year, you know, we had a couple that, that we were pretty confident about that we thought you know, the whole world thought that interest rates were going up and we thought interest rates were going down. And interest rates are lower today than the beginning of the year, even with the big rally in the last couple of weeks. You know, that turned out all right. We thought that the Fed wouldn't raise rates. You know, maybe they finally get around and raise them here in December, but I'm not even so sure about that. So I feel like we got that one. You know, one that just did not work out at all is we thought Kurodasan in Japan continued down the path of, of QQE and that the yen would continue to weaken and the Japanese market would be a great market this year. And on January 29th, he shocked everybody. You know, when we thought he'd take out the bazooka, we didn't know that he'd pointed at his face and fire uh, with the negative interest rate policy. And that was just a total disaster. So the yen, instead of going to 135, like we thought, went from 120 to 100, almost, almost hit 99 one day. And now it's back on track and head back towards 115, you know, I think it's 113 this morning. But you know, that one just did not work out at all. Though today we favor Japan again because we think this pinning of the, the uh, yield curve is, is an interesting strategy for them. But uh, that one didn't work out. You know, we had a view that the European banks would, would cause a, a black swan event in Europe because the big commodity trading companies like Glencore would go bust. That actually didn't happen. The banks went down a lot. In fact, we kind of like them here as a contrarian play, but not until the referendum on, on uh, Sunday in Italy, see what happens there first. But Glencore did not go bust. And in fact, it's up like 300% this year, as companies that don't go bankrupt are a great buy because they're basically just an option. You know, had a very contrarian view on commodities, uh, that commodities would, would have a great year this year after a five-year brutal bear market, one of the worst bear markets we've ever seen. Um, some of the companies, again, with your rule of 90%, were down 90, 95, 98%, and were raring for, for some big comebacks. So uh, it's been a very good view to have on commodities. And tied to that was our view that the dollar would not appreciate 
everybody, I mean, I, and I do mean everybody, thought the dollar was going to go up this year. And it's basically flat year to date. Um, it was down a lot before the election, and it's rallied a little bit post. Actually, it's rallied really since July when Draghi said he was going to cut um, purchases of, of bonds maybe next year. But, um, you know, we, we still think the dollar is headed down structurally for, for lots of different reasons, which is a very contrarian view to, you know, almost nobody agrees with us on that one. So we still think commodities look pretty good going forward. So, and then we thought high yield was going to be a lousy place. We believed Carl Icahn with his danger ahead um, webinar that he did uh, a year ago, November. And uh, unfortunately, we were, I guess, fortunately, we were right for the first six weeks of the year. You know, high yield bonds just got crushed. But then the world decided that they were not risky anymore. And, and they've been a great investment ever since. So we got that one totally wrong. Well, it's, you know, one of the things I do, and Mark has is, is taken to the medium of Twitter uh, quite nicely. And so I, I print out people's top five most retweeted tweets, which is something you can actually search on a website called, uh, it's called Favstar or Favstar. And it's a pet project of mine because I'm always talking about Twitter and all these curation services. They always get it wrong because the most popular tweets are always the ones they either have a quote or a statistic or photo where the signal is the tweet themselves. And most of the traditional world looks at Twitter and says, no, we're going to curate the links to like the Wall Street Journal. So whoever's talking about this link, and that's completely wrong way to do it. But, but unfortunately, you just answered about two or three of your favorite tweets. I'm going to read them real quick just because um, I, th I think they're interesting. But there's two quotes. One was, I think a Soros quote, but it says, it's not whether you're right or wrong that matters. It's how much you make when you're right and how much you lose when you're wrong. So you touched on that sort of asymmetric payoffs. And another one was, um, you know, talking about these big down markets, which is Templeton, which was to buy when others are despondently selling. Sell when they're greedily buying requires greatest fortitude, pays the greatest reward. And then again, another one that you also touched on, which, which is interesting because I think I saw a tweet today from the Robin Hood conference where... Drunken Miller was, uh, and, and I just saw the tweet, so I could be taking it out of context, where he said there's the possibility of interest rates going to 6% in the next year or two, which which obviously would be a very asymmetric move. But, um, you know, you, and there's one, I think it was only two days ago, it was one of your most popular tweets, it says everyone's calling the bottom in rates again, just like in 2013 and 2015. Hashtag killer D's demographics debt. What is your view on the interest rate world? Because we talk a lot about this where, you know, we, we talk a lot about Japan where we said, hey, look, when, when the J Japanese bond went below 2% originally, hasn't gone back above. And that's been years and years and everyone's been waiting for this. But at the same time, you know, we, we say you at least got to prepare, think about each possible scenario. What's, what's your kind of thematic view here? Is it, what do you call it, the lower for longer um, sort yeah, of, lower sort of for view. longer and and uh, turning Japanese hashtag turning Japanese that uh, I borrowed from Jonathan Davis. Look, I I'm still in the camp and look, I I, I hate to disagree with Druckenmiller because he's way richer than me, and so I I do not like to disagree with the guy. What what I believe and and what I think is is backed up by by data and science is that the killer D's demographics, debt, and deflation, once they get control, they're very hard to break. And, and again, you know, we've seen this movie before. You know, we went to zero interest rates in the 30s during the um, you know, Great Recession, which eventually turned into the Great Depression after the Fed tried to raise rates in 37 and plunged us into the Great Depression. But you know, all from the mid-30s up until 1944, we had zero interest rates. And, you know, we did this thing called quantitative easing because no one would buy our bonds. So we had to buy them ourselves. So this is not new. And people forget that working age population drives everything. So when you have lots of young people, so under 35, you have high inflation and you have low productivity and you have sporadic GDP growth. And that describes, you know, the 1960s and 70s in the United States. You know, the baby boomers were all, you know, 25 to 35. Finally, in 1980, they started turning 35. And boom, suddenly we took off. You know, everybody wants to say it was Reagan and the Laffer curve. No, it was demographics. When people start turning 35 to 55, they start 
being very highly productive, when they turn 45, that's when you get the just massive increase in spending, consumption, wealth effect. People are buying their starter houses. They're buying their trade-up houses. They're buying the extra car. Their kids are in college. You know, massive spending. And demographics drives everything. Then, once people start to turn 65, what happens? They spend less, productivity falls, and the government essentially has to issue debt to pay for all the entitlements they promised. So if you look at Japan, they're precisely 10 and a half years ahead of us demographically. So their market peaked in 1989. Our market peaked in 2000. Their debt got downgraded in 1990. Our debt got downgraded in 2001. And all the things that happen, they happen 10 and a half years later. So, you know, everyone tried to short JGBs when they were 7%, when they were 6, when they were 5, when they were 4, when they were 3, when they were 2, when they were 1, when they were half. And it's been called the widowmaker. And I think the same thing's true of the U.S. Is in you know most of my career, people have been saying rates can't go any lower. You know, you should you definitely should you should definitely buy a you know fixed rate mortgage, not an adjustable rate mortgage. It it people just don't understand that in the United States today, every single day, ten thousand people turn sixty-five. Same thing in Europe. Every day, ten thousand people turn sixty-five. And 65 to 85-year-olds do not spend like 45 to 65-year-olds. They're not productive like 45 to 65. doesn't mean they're not good people. doesn't mean they're not nice people. They just aren't productive in the way productivity counts in terms of generating GDP and, and growth and velocity and money. I believe we're not going to see the secular low in rates until 2021, 2022, when the echo boomers finally start to turn 35 and start getting family formation and the like. And the other piece of this, and, and I'm not taking, this is not Mark, this is Van Hoisington and Lacey Hunt at Hoisington uh, Management in Austin. They have some great work that shows that government spending has a negative multiplier effect. So deficit spending lowers growth and lowers interest rates. It does not increase growth and it does not increase interest rates, which everybody believes this, this new Trump policy is going to work. It's just not. And people try to compare him to Reagan. How do you compare when we had debt to GDP of 30%, we had high interest rates, which are a sign of economic strength, not weakness. We had 5.5% yield in the S&P. We had a PE of 6, probably a CAPE ratio of, of low double digits. And that was a great time demographically because everybody for the next 20 years was going to be in massive consumption mode. Today, we got 100% debt to GDP. We've got no yield in the S&P. We have no interest rates, sign of economic weakness. And you're going to spend more and expect to stimulate growth and higher rates? I just don't see it. I don't see it. Well, it's funny. I, I'd taken to Twitter to ask if anybody has questions for Mark and I think we've literally answered every, there's been about six or seven, every, every question people have asked. Although the most recent one was, was a little bit interesting is, is you kind of segue away from sort of these sector thematic ideas, a little bit about kind of your career. And the, the most recent tweet question from dad invest was what's, what's your biggest learning experience during your career? And that's a pretty broad yeah. question. So if you, you may need to t take a second to think no, about that look, it's, one. It's, but... a great, it's, it's a good question. It's, it's hard to, to pin it to one. Um, but, but, but for me, it, well, I'll, I'll give you a couple answers. So one, in terms of my business career, the, the biggest learning experience was trust your gut. And when you think someone's a bad person, they are. Yeah. And don't stay in business with bad people. So quick, that's, that's, that's the biggest learning experience. Is quick, quick to fire is, is great advice. I think it's hard. It's, it's hard to learn that Oh, skill. no, it's hard. It's very hard. But, you know, T. Boone Pickens had a great line, to your point on that. He was on The, the Daily Show, and, and uh, you know, John Stewart said, you know, sir, you have this reputation of, of being, you know, kind of, kind of tough and, and quick to, to fire people. And says, well, how, how do you know when to fire somebody? He says, the first time it enters my mind. <laughs> and they're like, that's exactly right. The first time you think it. 
And it's the same thing with selling a stock, right? The first time you think it, do it. But the biggest, the other biggest learning in terms of, of investing is, is again, to, to trust your instinct and not to overthink things, not to, you know, try to be precisely right. It's okay to be, you know, approximately right. I mean, don't, don't try to be precisely right because you're going to be precisely wrong. And that, that your instinct is, is really uh, a very important thing. Now, how do you get instinct? We only get instinct from experience and from learning and from making mistakes. And, and uh, you know, Soros has the, the great line, you know, I'm only rich because I admit my mistakes faster than other people. And I believe that 100%, 100%. I think that's great. And another thing that we think about is people, you know, often will talk about career advice and finance. And, you know, so many people want to get started early these days. There's so many hedge funds and investment funds. And, and people feel if you're not doing that in your 20s or even your early 30s. But I, I was listening to one of your interviews where you said, look, you know, Cooperman, Soros, Robertson, all those guys actually didn't start their funds until quite late in their career, right? Or quite 48, age-wise. 48, 49, and 50, yeah. Yeah, and so they built up this huge kind of knowledge base before starting their firms. And I mean, I mean, I look back and said, man, if I had started this coming out of college or whatever, I, there's so many lessons to have been learned. Anyway, I feel like people are in such a rush that we had a good guest on the podcast a few weeks ago. What did he say? He said, 20s were for learning, 30s were for earning and what were 40s for owning <laughs> i can't remember capitalizing and enjoy- the way i say it is your <laughs> 20s are for getting educated your 30s are for building your reputation the 40s are for capitalizing on your reputation and the 50s and 60s are for enjoying your reputation well i got so, a good education and learning how to ski in tahoe in my 20s so um, there you go that will, that will be forever with me um, we're going to start to wind down here you know one question we always like to ask guests uh going back to an old post is there something that most people may or may not know about that you find particularly useful, beautiful, magical? Uh, you have something for us today? Well, I, I'll, I'll kind of wrap it into to three little things all around the same thing. Um, so one is, is one of the most useful things, uh, I think, is, is getting outdoors. Um, my thing is fly fishing. I also like skiing. But, but uh, there's, there's something about being on a river uh, almost in a meditative state. And that's the second thing that goes to this, which is, is meditation. I'm still not very good at it, but it is an amazing practice. Mindfulness is an amazing practice. And all this wraps up to the one thing that really changed my life and the way I think about investing was a book called The Dow Jones Averages. And Dow is spelled T-A-O. And it was a book, uh, you can only get it now, used on Amazon. Um, it's out of print. But it was written by this guy, Bennett Goodspeed. And he basically wrote about the merging of Chinese philosophy and investing and how you need to use your whole brain in order to be a great investor. Most people think investing is all about the past and looking at data and being analytical, and it's not. It's about the future, which can't be quantified, right? It, it, it's that merging of past and future and being a whole-brained investor. And so all of that, which is, you know, get outside spend time alone, solitude, you know, you can't think if you're, you know, bathed in everyone else's views. You need to be away. You need to be in that, I love your word, magical, in that magical state of being alone with your own thoughts so you can actually know what you really think. That's why I love to write. Because if I don't, if I can't read what I wrote, how do I know what I think? And that's a that's a good that's a good segue into mine because the one I have today and I don't think I've used this one I apologize if I have if I have it bears repeating was a actual bike trip I did within the last five years but it's called the San Juan Hut system and I, and I'm an okay mountain biker I'm not great but you basically go from the town of Telluride which is in southwest Colorado to the town of Moab and it takes I think five nights or something. But the cool part is every night you stay in a hut that's stocked with food and beer and everything else. So, and I, th- I think beds and sleeping bags, but, 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 but meaning like cots and, and bunk beds, but it has everything else. All you have to do is bike in between the places each day. And it was one of the most magical, wonderful experiences. Now, granted, by the end of the, the last day, I'd, I was kind of having a huge meltdown because I had crashed probably 40 times on this trip. And <laughs> I love had, it. 
and it had enough. But check it out. We'll post a, a link on the show notes. Um, and it, it anyway, a really awesome, awesome experience. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time out today. Um, I want to remind you that you still owe me dinner. I can't even remember for what the bet was, but I'm not. Oh, I do. I do. It was Seahawks Denver, and I do owe you dinner. And okay. I, we will do it out your way because I need to come see my daughter, and I'll come buy you dinner. Good. There's lots of expensive sushi restaurants out here. I'll take you up on that. Um, Look, people want to find more information on you. Where do they go? Where uh, where can people follow your writing? A couple places. You can you can follow me on Twitter at Mark Yusko, and uh, you can come to our website, which is MorganCreekCapCap.com. You can just search, you know, Google for Morgan Creek Quarterly Letters, and all my letters will pop up in PDF. Um, But the website's got links too. You know, those are probably the easiest place to find me. When, when can we uh, find the unveiling of your next year's predictions? Will that be early January? So, yeah, third week of January, we will do the uh, 10 surprises for 2017. On the 13th of uh, December, we will do the review of uh, what we call every month. We do something called Around the World with USCO. They're a monthly webinar series. Um, we'll, we'll do the uh, review of the year on December 13th at 1 o'clock. Uh, this year is called From Surprises to Soros, because we did one on Soros's first law, which is the worse a situation gets, the less it takes to turn it around and the greater the upside. Um, so we'll talk a lot about those types of opportunities. And then the, the new surprises will be released the third weekend of, of January. And listeners, I think we may have mentioned this before, but there's one industry I think that's going to print one stock industry that's going to print six down years in a row. Mark, do you know what this is? Uranium one stock stocks. <laughs> Uranium. Uranium stocks. Wow. Which I know nothing about, but we did a fun article last year on coal stocks, which are down five years in a row, and they're having a great year. So maybe keep an eye out for uranium stocks, listeners. All right. I, Mark. I will. I will, because coal has been fantastic this year. Yeah. yeah. Look, it was awesome having you. We'll definitely have you out again sometime next year on the podcast. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback and questions for the mailbag at feedback at com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Today's podcast is sponsored by the ride-sharing app Lyft. While I only live about two miles from work, my favorite means of getting around traffic-clogged Los Angeles is to use the various ride-sharing apps, and Lyft is my favorite. Today, if you go to lyft.com forward slash invite forward slash meb, you get a free $50 credit to your first rides. Again, that's lyft.com forward slash invite forward slash meb.